And there's a little green cross right here too. I've got to put this on. Hi. <laughs> well, g'day, apparently. I'm Australian. Scraggin. <laughs> you know, mate. <laughs> got to keep an eye on these two in the front row, I think, today. I'm just going to let you know. Awesome. Well, good morning. Um, now I should get spiritual and serious, eh? So um, here we go. Today, um, I don't know where to start. We're going to start here. We're going to start with um, just a, a quick announcement on behalf of the Missions Council of the Church. Most of you probably know, some of you might be unaware, there is a missions council, and so much of what you give to this church, a percentage of that goes towards missional things, um, local mission, overseas mission, and so the leadership of the church wanted me to just announce to you guys today that the missions council has, is giving $1,000 to Samaritan's Purse this week um, because they have boots on the ground in Ukraine, and just to support their ministry there, loving people on the ground, giving food, shelter, comfort, care. I just wanted to let you guys know that, that $1,000 this week is being sent out to Samaritan's Purse, and just wanted to let you know that. So that's a pretty cool announcement, I thought. So thanks for your generosity here as a church, because it's fantastic. Um, and in that light, can I just pray for that, and pray for the message today, and our hearts to be open? Can we just join in prayer together? Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together today in relative safety, Lord. We honor you with ourselves today in the safe space. And in the safe space, we remember those who are today displaced and surrounded by conflict. We're reminded of the devastation of sin globally and its consequence of violence and death. And as we appreciate this space that we're in today, we offer up prayer for those who are in war-torn conflict. Help us to be reminded of the freedom you've won for us in our own sin and help us to walk in your grace. We ask that you'll teach us through your word and your spirit today as we gather in worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Congrats to the baptism people too. Just want to make note again, like last week, awesome just to see so many people being baptized in this. It's a really great sign of health and what God's up to when people are making, like are willing to step in on stage, on into a tub, be baptized and proclaim their faith publicly. I think that's just fantastic. So well done to everyone who got baptized last week. Two weeks ago, Pastor Peter preached. That was the last time we picked up in this book series. So if you've been following along, um, this church has been following along a book series. There's three books in the series, Good and Beautiful God, Good and Beautiful Life. It's a good thing I nearly did that. Um, and Good and Beautiful Community. <laughs> I really just offended nearly everyone in the church. Um, this three-part book series. And the church has been following along and using it as a sort of a framework to, to deliver some messages. And so two weeks ago, Pastor Peter wore his cardigan. Hey? I nearly bought one, but I just couldn't. I've got a green sweater on. That's something there, man. But it's not a hoodie. That's something. So, but the cardigan. And so the joke is, if you don't know, Pastor Greg, just he's just doing the ground. He's just cardigan up, man. Like, he looks so comfy and casual. So Pastor Peter, two weeks ago, was the last one to preach in the series. He wore a cardigan, and it worked. It was like a really good sermon. I don't know if you were here two weeks ago, but he ripped into it, and I was like, oh my gosh, I need a cardigan. Like, apparently, that's the cloak of faith here, man. So, so what I'm going to say is, if it's a really bad message today, it's the cardigan's fault. It's not me. It's because I didn't wear a cardigan, apparently. So, well done. But Pastor Peter, two weeks ago, I don't know if you guys were here, it was just a fantastic, uplifting, exhort, exhorting message for the church. And I encourage you to, to look into that, um, blessing those who curse you, because that's part of this book series we're in. So, I've been asked to preach on the, the, um, the one that we're in this week, Vainglory. Anyone even know what that means? Probably, what? what's he on about? Who's actually reading? No, I'm not going to ask. I wonder how many people are reading their book, and if you're not, it's okay, because that's why we're doing this. But if you have read your chapter, there's lots of great stuff in there. I'm not diving into repeating the chapter. I'm using it as an opportunity to share some thoughts today. So let's take the journey. Are you ready to rock and roll? 
Learning to Live Without Vainglory is the title of the chapter. So first, let's just do some definitions, and then I'm going to take a particular trajectory today to encourage us as the people of God um, who are a peculiar people. Did you know that? You're a peculiar people for more reasons than one, but certainly because you're a Christian, for those that are. Oh boy. What is vainglory? Vainglory, according to the author of this chapter, he talks about like the fact that we, the, the, the need to be affirmed and to be successful and liked, which produces pride, based on other people's assessment, or assessing, and I'm going to add this, assessing ourselves against the stories or liturgies in society today that aren't the gospel, or that aren't Jesus. Vainglory being measuring ourselves, being affirmed and measuring what success is, not on the measure of Jesus, but on the measure of something else. And he talks about this Thing called a false narrative. My value is determined by your assessment, which is kind of like a driver, a driving story that motivates behavior and, and, and this idea that vainglory is produced by this deep need to be um, successful in your eyes or in the world's eyes or liked, valued, whatever you want to add to that. Basically, who do you get your affirmation from and who is it that you seek affirmation from? I've heard it said that behind all you do lies what you actually believe. Behind all you do lies what you actually believe. And the truth is, so often what we actually believe doesn't get tested. It's, a, it's, it's just an, an operating assumption, an operating story. And that's part of the beauty of this book, is learning to test some of these operating assumptions. And that's what he's saying. One of these false narratives is that somehow my value, my worth, my success is measured by your assessment. And we just want to test that a little bit today. Is that all right? And, and see if we can see how God might want to replace that particular narrative. Rather than fixing on what we do, let's, let's address what it is that we believe that drives what we do. Um, and this is a bit of a different trajectory, but to give you an example, like in pastoral meetings with people, I will sometimes ask this question. And it's not the be-all, end-all, but I think it's a helpful question, because to, in order to test those stories, I want to ask you, if you would have answered this question, I'm not okay unless... dot, dot, dot. Or I'm only okay if, and then with brutal honesty answer that question. That's a hard one to do. It requires a lot of humility, a lot of self-awareness, but to be able to answer that question will just like kind of highlight what I'm saying that behind all we do lies what we believe. Because what motivates you to do what you do can be tested by answering the question, I'm not okay unless I have $10,000 in my savings account. So what's going to happen when the society crumbles and you lose your money? Are you going to be okay? That's just an example. I'm not knocking you if, that's, if you have money in your bank. What I'm saying is to test where you're not okay unless I have 10 friends or I have this or I'm not okay unless such and such. If you can ask that question and be really honest, you're going to begin to tap into some of what drives you or motivates you in relationships, in making decisions in life, because I think sometimes we operate that we're free-thinking, autonomous beings that have all these wonderful, rational thoughts, but really there's other stuff bubbling away, can we be honest, that motivates us into those things. And so that's the challenge of this book, is being addressing what's bubbling away underneath. And today we want to focus on this idea of measure and success. And vainglory is the word that they use that really talks a lot about, in short, a story that will name your desire to be in control and to find your success 
in the stories of the world. Now, I'll unpack that a little bit. We'll talk a bit about that. Vainglory is hard to assess and understand because it creeps in. Because I'm going to suggest today that for so many of us, there are deficits, man. There's holes in our life. There's stuff there that, that there's brokenness. Let's just be honest for a minute. There are things that motivate us and drive us. There's some holes in our life. That's why vainglory is so hard to test because sometimes it's, it's hard to let go of control, hey? To trust, to be the person God's called you to be because there's so much stuff going on there that we want to invite God to keep healing in us. Phil Vischer, who knows VeggieTales? Remember VeggieTales? I actually never watched it. I'm not going to lie. I actually don't know it that well. Um, I think my kids did, and so I saw it through that, but I didn't grow up with VeggieTales. I grew up with Salty. Remember Salty's Kids Bible? Anyone? Yeah, come on. That was my jam. Anyway, this has nothing to do with it. Um, Phil Vischer, he's the guy who wrote VeggieTales. He said something really fascinating. I think I've shared it with you before. I just thought it was an interesting quote. He's going to name a little bit of what we're talking about today. He says, look, we're drinking a cocktail that's a mixture of the Protestant work ethic the American dream, and the gospel. It's like all these different narratives, all these different liturgies mixed into this blender that we call Christianity. And, and, and he's trying to understand that there's some other stuff that gets mixed into the good news story a little bit. And that's this Protestant work ethic, the American dream, and we've intertwined them so completely that we can't tell them apart anymore. Our gospel has become a gospel of following your dreams, being good, and God will make all your dreams come true. So I had to peel that apart, and I realized I'm not supposed to pursue impact. I'm supposed to pursue God, my voice. And I, when I pursue God, I will have exactly as much impact as He wants me to have. Or oh, this comes up against this thing that we're going to slowly unpack and sift through today. I think it's a question as churches, as people, we want to keep asking. If we're serving under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who do we seek affirmation from and what for? I've named it, and it may be a bit abstract, but this is the language I like to use, is that I believe that the gospel is the good news story, amen? If you're a believer, you understand the gospel is this wonderful good news narrative that somehow you've been reconciled to God, because you really weren't all that, but somehow God chose you, redeemed you, and reconciled you to God, and set you free from bondage to sla- and slavery to death and sin. And there's hope, there's life, there's joy, there's peace, it's wonderful, it's not always perfect, but you've been reconciled to God. That's good news story, Right? How many of you know, without the gospel story, there are all kinds of social liturgies trying to narrate a story to shape you into what success looks like, what hope really is about, where you find your meaning, where you find your hope. For those who have been dragged through the mud of the world, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That there are stories out being trying to be told, and it's, I'm not pointing at the world and saying, oh, the world's so evil and bad. What I'm saying is without hope, we're going to try and narrate a story to make sense of things, and work out what it means to enjoy life and what success is. There's all kinds of social liturgies. I think it's why Paul encourages the church when he says, hey guys, just, I've got to just give you a, an understanding here. Because you've come out of that, that, that believing in that story and you've found the good news, he says, don't be squeezed into the patterns of this world anymore. Because it wants to keep squeezing you into a way of life that's narrating what the good life is. And he's saying, you found Jesus. It's a different way of being now. It's a, and if you've been a Christian longer, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a different way. It's a different life. It's a different story. Don't be squeezed into the pattern of the world. It's always been that way, though. This is not new. 
going to show a bit of um, biblical geography, biblical history. I am not a biblical scholar. I am not a historical expert. I've been really appreciating the work of Cindy Parker. She has a website. It's called Narrative of Place. She lives in Israel. She has done fascinating studies on land and context, a theology of place, how the land shapes and forms us. Wonderful treatment. I'm going to be using a little bit of her material to just share with you um, to highlight this point a little bit. We all know the story here, and we're not going to dig too deep into it, but Deuteronomy 7, not 9, Deuteronomy 7, I had a typo. God chose Israel a people, a distinct people on the face of the earth who were chosen and set apart for no reason other than the fact that they were the least, the weakest, really the nobodies. I'm just going to be straight up with you bunch of ragtag misfits that God chose. And he says this in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord didn't set his affection on you and choose you because you're more numerous than other people. In fact, you are the fewest, but it's because the Lord loved you and kept an oath. How many of you know God is faithful? Kept an oath that he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of Egypt. Verse 12 goes on to say, listen, if you pay attention to the laws, and you're careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep His covenant of love with you as He swore to your ancestors. He will love you, bless you, and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, your wine, olive oil, the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks, and the land swore to your ancestors to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. Just consider that for a minute. God's inviting them into a way of being, a way of doing, and a way of seeing, into which He's saying, this is not by your strength or might. It's not because you've been able to perform anything or because you're a large group of people. In fact, you're a really small people, and you really have not much going for you. But in that, I'm going to get to be your God, and my glory is going to be revealed to all the nations through you. You're going to live a different way. You're going to be a peculiar people on the face of the earth that are going to tell a different story. And he says, you will be blessed more than any other people. What an incredible promise, hey? They knew what it was like to live under tyrannical rule in Egypt. And he brings them through the wilderness to the precipice of new life. They cross the Jordan River, the 12 tribes of Israel. They enter into the the promised land. The peoples there are dispelled and they are landed in this location geographically into which God calls the land of promise. But I want to say something today. It was not a very special land. The Bible says it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It had resources. It was beautiful. But sometimes when we read kings like David and Solomon and we see all this thing, we think there's this big emerging superpower. But I want to let you know today that Israel geographically was surrounded by large dominating superpowers. They were never called to be a superpower. I'm going to show a map today. I'm going to describe a little bit what's going on geographically so you can learn with me a little bit today. So uh, I got this map here. So this is like modern day Iran and Iraq. Middle East, okay? You're going to see Israel, where they settled, is that little bit of land where I highlighted kind of red. You're going to see yellow blobs, and they're going to describe to you the world's superpowers that were predominant in this time. You have Assyria up the north, to the east of that, Babylon, right down to where the Persian Gulf is, you're going to have a superpower called Persia. On the other side of what's called the Fertile Crescent, on the other side, you're going to see Egypt, So you've got Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, and then you have Israel settling in a land that's right down the bottom there. Now, listen to this. 
really fascinating stuff. Um, historians will say that this is where agriculture first began. These became the first agricultural societies because you have two major rivers on this what's called the Fertile Crescent. See the purple lines? That's the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. Two major rivers that ran from the mountain range, fresh, free-flowing water, teeming with life, and it flowed right through that land into the Persian Gulf. Because that happened, every year these riverbanks would burst and flood and deposit rich soil throughout the land. That's why it's called the Fertile Crescent. It was fertile land. It was some of the best land for produce. How many of you know when they clued into that and they started growing crop? They started growing a lot of crop. So all of a sudden you have these agricultural societies emerging where they began to grow crops and they became bountiful crops. And when you get bountiful crops, you can begin to trade with other nations. So as you begin to trade, you get wealthy, and as you get wealthy, you begin to build armies and you begin to build cities and societies, and this is what began to happen. Now there's probably way more in between that, but just to narrate a brief story. So you have these world superpowers. Assyria, Nineveh was the capital. It's where we read the story about, jo you remember Jonah running away, he's going to Nineveh? That's the capital, Assyria. They were a large, dominating superpower. I mean, they had it all. Israel was terrified of them. That's why Jonah was so mad that God would actually forgive them. Jonah didn't run away just because he was scared. He ran away because God said, I'm going to forgive these people. And he's like, no. And then when he does, he sits under a tree and pouts. He's like, oh, I can't believe God forgave these people. They were awful. That's a whole other storyline. But you see here, and down in the bottom, you've got Egypt. Egypt's another superpower. Why? Because they had fertile land too. They had the river, the Nile, which was a beautiful, fresh river. Not today, it's very dirty, but then beautiful, fresh river that would flow right through and at the same time would also deposit soil that created fertile ground for growth and they became a superpower. So you have these four superpowers that had armies, kings, storehouses, trade, wealth, interesting stuff going on geography, in, geographically. And then you have Israel. <laughs> and we can't see it on here, but if you look at like a to topography map, you're going to see that Israel, where they were, are kind of surrounded by this mountain range that's very textured, and it's like hilly, and then it dips down, and it's like this water basin. And they have the Jordan River, which is a beautiful river, but it doesn't produce the same resource as the mighty Nile, Euphrates, and Tigris River. So they have this beautiful river, but for them it doesn't produce the same thing. However, it's still a good river. And so they were living around the mountain ranges there in different locations. They also had the Mediterranean Sea and they had other, other access. So they had good land, good resources. But it wasn't as accessible. It wasn't the same fertility as it was in this Mesopotamia land. So God had brought them to this unique part of the world where they were going to settle, where the land didn't produce in the same way, but it was still good. It was enough for who they needed to be. Why is, would God choose to bring Israel to this part of the land? <laughs> Why not where Assyria was, where it's so fertile, where they could like create great wealth and become a dominating superpower in the region? I wonder if it's because it's not so much about where they landed, it was how they were going to use their land. What's really interesting here is because trade now existed, the major highways that came around the desert, because that's desert, through the Fertile Crescent, to get to Egypt and to the lower land, passed through Israel. So the major highways and roads all passed through Israel. Israel became this kind of host of all the nations passing through 
on these trade routes, on these major highways. And, and it's a really fascinating thing because the Bible narrates time and time again in the Old Testament that the Israelites were going to be a hospitable people. You're going to welcome the foreigner and the stranger. You're going to welcome the sojourner. You're going to welcome the weary traveler. You're going to welcome through. You're going to be a unique people who embody lordship of God as a distinct people who are really a nobody. You're not a superpower and you're never going to be. You're going to be a people who exist under the lordship of God to demonstrate God's glory to all the world in your weakness and you're going to be a hospitable nation. They're going to welcome the nations through you. You're going to tell a different story. While all these other superpowers became these dominating world powers, Israel was set apart to be different. Some devastating things happen. Before we get there, do you remember the promise to Abraham? The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I'm going to show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and be, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's a fascinating job description. Israel, I will bless you. I will be your God. You will be a blessing to all of the world. Something devastating happened though. People of God, they were a chosen people because of a promise. They were placed in a land that would shape and form them. They were going to live a different story, narrate a different way of life. God was going to get the glory. They were going to be a people of hospitality. God was going to bless them. They were going to increase, not by their own strength, not by being a dominating world power, but by being God's people. God would bless them. And something happened. This is really devastating if you know your biblical history. You know in 1 Samuel, Samuel was a priest who mediated with God, and the people of God began to see what was going around. They were seeing all these people passing through, and they're like, poor, they got some fancy chariots, man. They got some good stuff. They got kings. They got armies. They've got power. We want a bit of that. Let's hook up with that thought. Let's hook up with that story. They come to Samuel, and they say, give us a king to lead us, the people cried out to God. And Samuel devastated, goes to God and says, God, what do I do? These guys want a king. They want to be like Assyria, Babylon. They want to be like this. What do I even do? And God said, now listen to them, but you just warn them really solemnly. Let them know what a, that the king will reign over you, will claim his rights. So Samuel goes back to the people and pleads with them. He says, guys, if you want a king, I need to let you know. I'm not going to talk about it here, but he just says, he's going to tax you heavily. Your sons are going to go off to war. You're going to be lorded over. It's going to change your way of life. It's going to change the way that you are a community distinct on the face of the earth. You're going to be a different people. I need to warn you. And you know what they said? 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and for the king to fight our battles. Isn't that a shift? See, God would place them in this section of land to be a distinct people, to show a different way, and God would get the glory because they were ruled by God. But now somehow a subtle shift to be the superpower, to be successful, looked like that, and they wanted it. 
Long story short, Israel over a period of time get conquered. It's almost as if God says, okay, if that's what you want, here it is. And in fact, Israel got exactly what they wanted. They wanted a king to lord over them. They wanted to be part of a superpower. So Assyria rose up and conquered the northern part of Israel, destroyed it. Judah, because Israel split because of this, some kings started happening, bad kings. Israel divided. You have a north and a south. And Israel, Assyria rose up, conquered the north, took them into slavery. Babylon rose up, King Nebuchadnezzar, conquered Jerusalem, Judah. Destroyed the temple, destroyed the wall, devastated the community, gouged out the king's eyeballs, took him into captivity, and the people of God went off and got what they wanted. They got a king. They got the superpower. They got all that they thought that they desired. How many of you know it was devastating? They spent years in captivity, in bondage. They couldn't even worship God, make sacrifice, and there they were serving foreign kings. It's a fascinating study because you see that God, they got exactly what they wanted. And it starts with that temptation to be like the rest, to find their measure, their sense of who they were, the assessment turned in on themselves based on the world's standards, based on what was going on around them when God had called them to be a distinct people led by faith to release control. They wanted control. They wanted a king to rule us, to fight their battles. This is the subtle temptation of this vainglory thing. It wants to creep into everything we do to find our meaning, our worth, our success, our measure in the stories of the world that look so attractive rather than faithful obedience in faith to Jesus Christ in the gospel narrative. This is the wrestle, the temptation. The moment of shifting the success, to be secure in the world. The world became the yardstick, and what they wanted, they became enslaved to. Have you ever found that in your life? Sometimes the thing you want actually keeps you in bondage. The things that you think are going to give you meaning, purpose, life, success, actually put you back in prison. This is why vainglory is so subtle, so temp- so difficult to really name, because it names it but behind the surface is these other things, these other desires, these other wants, longings, loves, worship that are directed toward the things of this world while we're being invited to be a faithful people, peculiar, set apart from the world. They were divided. I think this is because God had actually called Israel to be a nation of influence, not superpower. They were called to be a people who were going to influence the world, bless the world, and in that life of faith, God would prosper them in the way that He wanted to prosper them, not in the way that they thought they needed to be prospered. Do you get the difference? It was kind of like, we're not in control, let God be the measure of success, let Him produce what He wants to produce, and we will learn to be faithful in obedience in relationship with God. This is the subtle temptation of vainglory, that desire to be in control, that desire to produce for God, to step out and, and be successful on other people's assessment rather than the success of faithfulness to Jesus. I want to let you know that Jesus fought this temptation for us. You remember the story? The devil takes Jesus, three temptations. One of these temptations is really fascinating. Luke 4, 9 to 13. The devil led Jesus to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, they will lift up their hands, so you will not strike your foot against a stone. 
really might just read over this. It doesn't seem like there's much there, is it, hey? But the devil has taken Jesus before Jesus has even began his ministry and basically says to him, listen, Jesus, we're up really high here. Look at all the crowds. Look at all the people. Jump off. Wow, what a miracle. Because the Bible says that the angels will catch you and raise you up. And you know what? Everyone's going to see. Wow, look at this big event. Look at this big thing that he's doing. And you know what, Jesus? They're all going to come and applaud you, and it's going to be a miracle. What a way to start your ministry. Why would you muck around in the dirt and clay of Galilee with the dirty people when you can just jump off, go out with a bang? It's the beginning of your ministry, and nothing's going to happen to you. You'll be successful. What a way to start your ministry. You know what Jesus does? Don't you dare put me to the test. Because I know who sent me and where I'm going. And my life is a life of obedience to the Father. And it's going to be a different way of living than what you're trying to offer me. (laughs) Go away. Because Jesus knew this subtle temptation to be successful and to be liked by people was not the story of success. Success was faithful obedience to the Father, to the cross. And for him, it meant the mundane day-to-day, walking through Galilee with the Holy Spirit, trusting the Father, encountering the people that God wanted, the Father wanted him to encounter. Not, hey, let's be successful the way the world wants me to be successful. In fact, he even challenged some of the followers and said, you're only here because of miracles. But the true embodiment of this is faithful obedience to the Father. Jesus was unwavering in this path. He knew who he had come from and where he was going. He understood the nature of the mundane existence. Vainglory is a subtle motivation to turn it all on yourself. And I think it's born out of that deficit, that deficit that desires for fulfillment in the eyes of others, to be successful in the world's eyes, to do things from the motivation of being wanted and accepted and liked by others. But Jesus defeated that temptation. He invites us into what the author of this chapter calls humility. You know, the word humility is not like, oh, I'm so awful and I am so weak and bad. It's saying, Jesus, if I'm going to measure myself against anyone, it's going to be you. Because if I measure myself against someone else and I elevate myself, there's pride. Or if I measure my success based on what you think success is, then there's pride. But if I'm going to measure myself against anyone, Jesus, let you be the yardstick. Let you be the cornerstone. That's what humility actually means. It means to have an accurate picture of yourself, not in a way, but in light of who Jesus is. And you know what happens in that revelation? You say, wow, <laughs> thank you, Jesus. I, I, I am weak and I am unable, but look how you've reconciled me to God and you're brought low. But in the bringing low, you're actually raised up. That's the fascinating thing about this is in being brought low as a humble person measuring yourself against Christ, you're actually raised up. This is what it says in Colossians. Uh, sorry, James 4, 6 says, He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Verse 10 says, humble yourself before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Because when we realize that if we're looking for affirmation and success, but when we turn to Jesus and say, God, faith in you, faithful obedience in you, that's where you realize, I actually aren't in control of nothing. I'm not in control of the war. 
I'm not in control of the financial situation. I'm, I'm not in control. I release control. And in that, you realize you actually can't do anything. And it's in that transaction that God says, I will bless you, multiply you, keep you, raise you up. The promise of God still stands. Doing this, I think, is a shift from being like the rest, needing power to be relevant, to have the spectacle, to just being faithful followers of Christ, man. Faithful obedience, following the way of Jesus. One of my favorite books called The Choice says, while production-driven leaders focus on ends and are celebrated for delivering results, steward leaders focus on the goal of unwavering obedience to the master's instructions and give him glory for whatever fruit he produces. We are a people who learn to rest in faith in Jesus and let him produce whatever he wants so we're no longer striving for success and meaning and affirmation in the world, but to turn it back to Jesus and to realize that in that faithful obedience to him, he will produce what he wants to produce. I'm going to show two pictures here and we're going to get close to the end. I'm going to invite your input here. Who knows Vincent van Gogh? Who's like into art? I'm not, but I've appreciated it more. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm actually beginning to learn that there are things in metaphor and art that just tell a story that just transcend words sometimes. Like, it's cool. And one of the things about Vincent van Gogh, I just quick little narrative about him. He's the guy that cut off his ear, hey? And he's, he's remembered for a, a guy who really struggled, like, with his mental health, um, with certain issues. People believe that he committed suicide. There's a whole... It's a, it's a sad story. Um, actually, what people don't... Some people don't realize Van Gogh actually um, was the son of a reformed minister and always wanted to, wanted to pursue pastoral vocation. He had a heart for the marginalized, the people on the fringes, because I think he himself was a bit like that. And you know what he did was he went to a seminary exam and he failed it. And so he ended up getting in with a denomination where he was allowed to be a minister and he went and ministered in a coal mining town, which was like the poor of the poor, man. These guys worked long hours, got paid nothing, and they're all dirty, so they'd come to church in their coal mining clothes. Van Gogh pretty quickly realized that he was just going to dress like them and hang out like them. He entered into their world, into their space, and actually dressed like a coal miner. Um, some of the powers that be in that particular denomination were like, well, that's a bit beyond us, and they fired him. Don't be like that, how dare you? It was a devastating moment, and I think it was a devastating moment for Van Gogh too, because his mental health declined. It was during this time he actually began to take in down and outers into his home, that included prostitutes, and there's a lot of speculation around that. I think there was a part of him that just wanted to care for the marginalized. Maybe he got that wrong sometimes. I don't know. Um, actually, this author that I was reading about Van Gogh has a perspective on his death that said, it's possible that he didn't kill himself. There's some, there's some evidence around that there was a couple of boys playing with a gun, and he got shot. And it took him three days to die, and he kept his mouth closed. This author believes that actually he was protecting these kids and uh, actually didn't want them to get in trouble. Now, that's subjective. I don't know the truth there. But a bit of context to Van Gogh there. During this time, he painted a lot of amazing paintings. Um, lots of color, vibrant, like just beautiful. One of his heroes was Jean-Francois Millet, who was a, a French painter way before him, who painted a series called The Sower. Uh, is anyone aware of The Sower series from Van Gogh? Or, yeah, awesome. So this is the one from Jean-Francois Millet. Um, Van Gogh painted a series, but I wanted to draw your attention to this. And I wanted to ask you a question. This is really subjective. That's the hard thing about art, but I want to hear your opinion. What are you drawn to? When you see this image, what's the first thing you notice, if anything? Just yell it out. Seeds, bit of light in the background. 
bit of blue. Ground. What do you notice about the man? What's he doing? Maybe Runny's casting. Yeah. What do you notice about the color? It's very dark, isn't it? Yeah. Do you notice that it's brown, it's dark? Does it look like potentially a bit of hard work? He's casting seed. He's farming. He's out there. And, and, and I particularly am drawn to him. He's the center of this, this, this picture. He's working the seed, man. He's, he's toiling. It's like, it's labor. It's hard work, man. You've got to plant that seed and get that crop going. And he's doing that. And I, and I love what Van Gogh does with this painting. Let's flip the picture. Tell me about this one. What are you, what are you drawn to in this picture? The sun. Isn't that interesting? What else? The brightness. What else, if anything? Plentiful. You notice there's crops? Yeah, man. What else? Who? You can see he's different, isn't he, hey? Now, again, I know art is, like, it's hard to, like, I'm just going to give you my subjective opinion. I think the first one shows a narrative of hard work. And, and, and actually, the object of that painting was the man. Yeah, a little bit of brightness in the background, but it's really your focal point of that painting is the man working the land. I love the, what Van Gogh does here because the focal point isn't the man. It's actually this big, bright sun that is growing the crop. And his place in the story in this painting is he's simply out in the field putting the seed in the ground. And there's a lot of color. There's a lot of peace to me when I see this photo, this painting. It's different than the hard-working farmer who's out there producing that, that stuff, you know, getting motivated to get it done. It's dark. It's thrashing. Someone said it looked like he's running. And here you just see him just gently sprinkling the seed on the ground. And there's this big, bright sun. And I wonder if it's reminding us that, you know, there's the path and there's the birds, but he's out there just faithfully working the land, tossing the seed. And the recognition of this painting is it's actually the sun that produces the energy to grow the seed. It's not on his own works. I think this kind of encapsulates a little bit of maybe what I'm trying to help us see clearly today, is that idea to be successful, to be driven, to produce, to be measured by the world's stories and what that looks like versus this letting go of control and faithful obedience to the master and seeing the bigger picture into which it's actually God who grows. It's God who's in control. We release control to Him and we walk in faithful obedience. Psalm 147 says, His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse. His delight is not in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear Him and put their hope in His unfailing love. Learning to be a peculiar people that have been reconciled to the Lordship of God who is reigning on the throne has invited us into a new creation story in which we're invited into faithful obedience to the way of Jesus it looks different than the world. That's the call to us in vainglory, to, to work out what that other stuff's going on, to deny the need to be successful and assessed by the world, but to be the people of God He's called us to be. And that comes through faithful rest in who Jesus is. We're going to take communion. The band's going to come up right now and we'll conclude our service. We'll be careful not to compare ourselves Faithful obedience looks like hearing the words of Jesus saying, follow me. After Peter was restored 
He denied Jesus three times. He encounters the love of Jesus. Jesus restores him and then looks at Peter and says, Peter, I I just need to let you know some news, man. You're going to let go of control. And I'm actually going to say something to you that's going to be really hard. Peter, they're going to take you to places you don't want to go. And you're going to die. It's a really harsh message. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, you're going to let go of control. In John 21, it tells us that story. Jesus said this to indicate the type of death Peter would glorify God. And then he looked at Peter and said, follow me. And Peter's like, what? That's a pretty hard word, Jesus. And his initial response, and he looked at John and he said, well, what about him? And Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what's it to you? You must follow me. I think that's the the nitty-gritty right there. Letting go of control is death, and it's hard to do. And our temptation is to be like, well, where's our money going to come from? Where's our provision going to come from? Where's my affirmation going to come from? What about them? And what about that guy I work with who has such a nice job, and you want me to do this? And Jesus is like, grabs your face and says, no, 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 you follow me. That transaction of releasing control and stepping into faith and saying, okay, Jesus, I can't produce for you. All you're doing is inviting me into the field and I'm going to have that big bright sunshine and I'm just going to do the seed. I'm not going to strive to be successful in your eyes. That's hard to do, isn't it? Don't want to romanticize that life. It's really tricky. But that's the life we're invited into as a body who are diverse and peculiar and are going to live a different life, to be hospitable, to be the influencers, to not dominate, to not seek power and thirst after those things, but to be a people set apart to influence the world for God's glory so that in our weakness, God gets the glory. Amen. Let's take communion because communion really to me today is just a reminder that the work's complete and we get to enter into that rest. We get to enter into a rest that has been won, into which we've been set free from bondage to the world superpower, which was sin. We've been set free. And there's freedom that reigns because of what Jesus does. You no longer need to be bound to the old way. You no longer need to live into a story that is is hopeless. You have hope. You've been redeemed. You've been reconciled. Our communion today is going to remind us that there's no more striving, no more bondage. There's freedom. So let's declare freedom and peace over our church today. You've been set free. Let's take communion together. I lost my cup. I've already had it this morning. I could probably do with a few doses of communion, given that I am tended towards sin as well. But you know what? You take it. Let's take the, uh, the, the bread. Yeah, let's do that first, because then you're thirsty. I get it. Thanks, buddy. We're going to take the bread, because we're going to... And I want you to just look around the room right now as you take the bread. I know it's awkward, but just look around. Catch eyes with some people who you don't know. Because the bread symbolizes the, in the brokenness of the, the, of the body of Christ, we are a diverse people that are brought together in the common union of His body. And so these people are your brothers and sisters. We're diverse, peculiar, a little strange, but this is the people God's called together. So let's thank God for what He's doing and eat together. I must have sinned in between services, so I'm just going again. So. And let's drink this the, the, the wine that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us to atone for our sins and set us free. Thank you, Jesus.
Let's drink together. Let's stand and we're going to sing this song together and be sent out into the world. For those who are just, I encourage you, the cross, there's going to be a team there praying. Go and pray. If you're in that space and you need prayer and you look, you're looking for that fellowship, I encourage you, go over to the cross and pray. But right now, stand. We're going to sing together and conclude our time. God bless you. <laughs> I just want to speak the name of Jesus. as you go into the rest of your week. We'll see you next Sunday. Thanks for coming today.